right, Mark chapter 2 is where we're at, picking up where we left off last week, Mark 2, beginning in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If it does, if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to come and gather as a people under the authority of your word. Father, I confess my complete inadequacy to do the work that needs to be done in the hearts of your people. Uh, Father, I can't. I can't uh, bring life. I can't convict of sin. I can't bring comfort or joy. Only you can. Only your spirit can. Only your word can. And so, Father, I ask you to come and do. Do the work that you long to do in us. The work you long to do in our city. Do this work in me, even as we walk through this passage. Father, may you bring life today. May you bring hope. May you bring joy. We need it. We are desperate for it. And if we don't think we need it, Father, may you open our eyes and help us to see how much we need it. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. As we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' fame has been growing as he's been doing these incredible miracles and and healing people in ways that no one had ever seen, touching lepers, casting out demons, having authoritative teaching, authority over demons, has been healing paralytics and forgiving sin. He's been, he's been doing things that are making the people say, we've never seen anything like this before. His fame is growing by leaps and bounds throughout this entire region. And, it, and we've come right now today, smack dab in the middle of, of, of this section of Mark's gospel, the first gospel recorded about the life and work of Jesus. And he is in the middle of this confrontation that, that's beginning between him and the religious leaders and is only going to increase in intensity and and it caused problems for him later on. And, and a few weeks ago, we saw where it began when he healed the paralytic and he forgave him of his sins. And the religious leaders there and the crowd were thinking in their heads, wait, only God can forgive sins, which is a legitimate objection. Like if Jesus were not God, he shouldn't do that. They didn't know he was God. But they didn't say anything. They just thought it. Jesus read their mind because he is God. And he addressed the issue. And then last week we saw where some of the scribes of the Pharisees were, were talking about what Jesus was doing, eating with tax collectors and sinners. And you're not supposed to do this. And Jesus heard them say this. So again, they're not confronting him directly. They're talking about him. He overhears and addresses the issue. Today we see people, not the religious leaders, some people come up and ask Jesus a specific question about what they're not doing. We notice these other people doing these things. You're not doing this. Why is that? And this is going to increase in intensity so that by the end of verse 6 of chapter 3, they're already ready to kill him. So this is, this is only going to grow. So much though, so by the end of chapter 3, 
they will have committed the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, which we'll get to that later on. Now, the disciples of John refer to John the baptizer. And so the people are noticing that the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but but why don't your disciples fast? In other words, we know what these other religious groups are doing, and we notice your religious group is doing something different. We're, We're trying to find something wrong with this movement. This might be it. And so these disciples of John, John the baptizer, this forerunner of Jesus. Now we know that two of his disciples left John and became one of two of Jesus' disciples. But those disciples, for whatever reason, continued, some of those disciples continued with John. We know later in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, John's about to be executed and some of his disciples go to Jesus just to make sure, are you the one? We know in Acts chapter 19 that they find disciples of John the Baptist way up near Ephesus and Paul comes across them and gives them the baptism of Jesus and they they come alive in Christ seeing that Jesus fulfilled everything John was talking about. But these disciples of John, these followers of John who followed his call to repent and turn again to the Lord, apparently they practiced fasting in some kind of way that people knew it. The Pharisees, which is the more known group, we know a lot more about the Pharisees than than the disciples of John. Pharisees literally mean holy ones or separated ones. And they were a group of men that rose about 200 years earlier during the time of the Maccabean Revolt, a revolt of the Jews against the Greeks who came in and, and were forcing the Jews to renounce Judaism, to, to desecrate the temple and do things that God had called them not to do. And a, and a group of men led by Judas Maccabeus revolted against the Greek leadership and it became the Maccabean Revolt, became the, the foundation for what is celebrated today is called Hanukkah. But the Pharisees arose during that time because the, the Jews were tempted to turn away from Judaism and to embrace Hellenistic worldviews, Greek worldviews, Greek religions, worship of pagan gods, and not adhere their life to the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And the Pharisees were known for their devotion to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They had, over the years, created tons of oral traditions and written traditions about how you you interpret the Torah, how you obey the Torah, how it looks in your life. They were incredibly zealous, incredibly meticulous in how they obeyed the law. They were known for this. And these were a group of men that numbered by this first century around 6,000, about 1% of the population. And they were highly respected by the people. Like, they were, they were seen as the successors of Moses by the people. And so we have this view of the Pharisees that, that they're hypocrites and they're legalistic and they're religious, uh, religiously dead. They're just following these rules. And that's, that's because we know the whole story. But if you go back before Jesus confronted them, before Jesus called them out, they were highly respected by the people. The people thought anyone obeyed the Old Testament. It was the Pharisees. They did it better than anybody else. If anyone was holy... It was the Pharisees. And so when Jesus comes along and begins to question them, even confront them, and eventually really call them out, it's scandalous. Scandalous. Who is this guy? Literally, he was a nobody from nowhere. He hasn't been to all the rabbinical schools. He hasn't come up through the Pharisees or Sadducees or any of the other groups. Who is he to call these guys out? And the Pharisees practiced a type of fasting. Now, now, in the, in the Judaistic law, there was only one day that was prescribed as a, as a fast for the people. And it was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, 
The one day of the year where the nation would come and have their sins atoned for. The one day of the year where a sacrifice would be offered for the sins of the people in the Holy of Holies, this inner sanctum of the temple. The one day of the year where the entire nation would fast for 24 hours. That was all that was required in the Old Testament law. The Pharisees, though, over the years kind of added to that to show their devoutness, their, their, their zealousness. And so they began to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And they were very visible about their fasting. They would wear ash on their face. They would, they would kind of mangle their clothes. They would walk around and kind of look miserable, like, oh, we're so holy and miserable because, because we're so holy. We're not eating. Look how holy we are and devout we are. Much better than all you people. And it was, it was very intentional. They wanted their righteousness to be seen. All right? And so this is very obvious to the people. These, these people are fasting, and these people are fasting, but Jesus, we don't see any of your disciples fast. In other words, if you want to be accepted as a new religious group, you're going to have to start doing some things that these other guys are doing. So how does Jesus respond to that? And his response is breathtaking, verse 19 and 20. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then... They will fast in that day. Now, before we get into what he said, realize that this question and answer he's giving is is really not about fasting. Jesus is not giving his philosophy of fasting and what fasting should look like in the life of his followers. Fasting is something Jesus has already practiced for 40 days in the wilderness. Fasting is something that he assumes his followers will do. So you go to a a, a chapter like Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus says in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 16, and when you fast... In other words, you're my followers, you're my disciples, not if you fast, when you fast. Don't do it like the Pharisees who walk around with this gloomy look on their face so that everybody can see their righteous works. You don't have to practice every aspect of your your walk with me so that other people can, can see it. Your prayers, your giving, your fasting, this is all in Matthew 6, are to be done at times in secret so that nobody sees it. Like every time you, you have a quiet time, you don't have to take a picture of your phone and your coffee, I mean your uh, coffee, your journal, and your Bible and put it on Instagram. You don't have to be, like you can be in secret. Nobody has to know that you're spending time with the Lord. And so your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward that secret devotion, that secret walk with Him. But the expectation of fasting among the first century Jews was that you fasted to show your devotion, your piety, essentially your misery. I'm so miserable, look how holy I am. And Jesus corrected that. He says we don't fast to show how super spiritual we are. And so I'm going to post some resources this week that talk about fasting and, and what it could look like in your life, how it should look in your life. But it's definitely something that should be part of your walk with Jesus Um, Our fasting should be something, though, we do in secret. Unless we come together as a community of faith and say, hey, let's fast together for this this season and pray about something God's calling us to do. But Jesus answered this question by saying, now now is not the time to fast. Now is not the time to fast. Why? Because he, the bridegroom, is present. And as long as he is present, you don't fast. So... To step into the shoes of those in the first century and understand this as much as we can as they heard it. Weddings and uh, the, the wedding ceremony in that day is nothing like what we celebrate today. And some similarities, but very, very different. They, they would be, for a couple who's never been married, there would be a seven-day feast. 
where the, the bride and the groom, uh, who had, you know, the people lived in these kind of family compounds, would invite all of their family and friends into this compound where they would end up living probably with one of their parents, and you would come have a seven-day party. The wedding would be at the beginning of the party, and then the rest of the week, this family is providing food and drink for everyone to just celebrate this coming together of a new family. It was a huge, huge deal in that culture. Big deal. I mean, even the Pharisees had laws written that they had created that would allow them to forego some of their fasting when they were celebrating a wedding. Like when the Pharisees would go to a local wedding, they didn't have to fast on Monday and Thursday because it would be weird to show up at a celebration and not join in the celebration. Like, oh, I can't have any of the wine. I can't have any of the food because I'm fasting. You don't, you don't do that. It's a party. It's a time to enjoy the, the gift of God to this couple, to this family, to this community. Because families were the kind of the, the fabric of society that held the society together, that kept perpetuating the society, much as it is today. And so instead of a couple getting married and then riding off or flying off to a honeymoon for a week, they essentially would, because it, it can't go very far on a donkey or a camel, they would essentially have the, the honeymoon and the party and celebration all week. Like if we wanted to contextualize this today, it would be like a couple gets married and then they take everybody with them on the honeymoon, which I'm proposing should be part of the Crossing Church's wedding policy. If you're part of the Crossing Church, you get married, you've you got to take all of us with you, right? We're tr- just trying to do it like they did in the first century. It's retroactive too, so just sign this up. <laughs> um, now what's astonishing about what Jesus is saying is this. He is clearly identifying himself as the bridegroom. I am the bridegroom. I'm still here. Therefore, my disciples, of course, won't fast. Why is that astonishing? Well, nowhere, nowhere in the Old Testament is the Messiah identified as the bridegroom. Messiah is never called the bridegroom in the Old Testament. They didn't even think about looking for the Messiah as the bridegroom. Look at some of these passages that talk about the bridegroom. Isaiah 54, 5 through 8. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Better known, Hosea 2, 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. In the Old Testament, the bridegroom is God. The bridegroom is God. Jesus is emphatically saying, I am he. 
The bridegroom in the Old Testament is God. I am the God of the Old Testament in the flesh. This is who I am. And what I've come to do is come and get my bride. And right now, this is a wedding feast. So we don't fast or mourn because I'm here. It's time to party. It's time to enjoy what I've come to do. It's time to come and enjoy who I am. Now, there will be a time for fasting and mourning when when the bridegroom is taken away. Again, this is very emphatic language Jesus uses in Mark, Mark 2. Like, in, in the wedding, remember how I described it. The, the bride and groom and their families have you over to their home. At the end of the party, everybody else leaves. Like, they don't go away. So for Jesus to say the bridegroom is taken away, what? What, what is he talking about? The bridegroom is taken away. That doesn't happen in a wedding. So obviously he's talking about something very different. And so scholars, most scholars think that Jesus is already referring to the cross when he would be taken away and punished for our sin, coming to accomplish the work that he came to accomplish. Now, even if, some scholars say that's not really what Jesus is talking about, even if that isn't the reference he's trying to make, it is definitely where our hearts go. It is definitely where the hearts of the original audience, the readers of the Gospel of Mark, go. Because they know when the bridegroom is taken away. They know when this took place. They know when there will be mourning and sadness and fasting. Those three days when Jesus lay in the earth between the crucifixion and resurrection. But even that would end in joy. Because the bridegroom would live and purchase his bride and come to live with his bride forever. You see, is the bridegroom with us now? Yes. Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. When we come alive in Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, we become the temple of God so that we live with the bridegroom in us, with us, to enjoy him, the joy that comes from being with the bridegroom. It is now so that even when we fast today, the fasting is not to show how miserable and holy and and self-righteous we are. The fasting is intended to intensify our love and devotion to the bridegroom. We, We lay aside of physical pleasures to intensify our spiritual desires for the bridegroom. It's still about the bridegroom. That's that's why we fast for his sake. They fasted, disciples of John, disciples of the Pharisees, for for other reasons. We fast so that we love the bridegroom more and more and more, so that we're more devoted to the bridegroom. Our love is intensified for him, greater worship, greater obedience. And one day, our bridegroom will return and bring us to his everlasting kingdom, where we will have joys never imagined, where we will party and we will feast and we will drink like never before, without sin. That day is still yet to come. And until then, he is here. So our joy is here, even as we fast here and now. There's a passage in John 16 that I think helps see this even clearer. John 16, beginning in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. Talking to his, his 11 disciples. By this time, Judas has left to go and betray him. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, then you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We, we don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, 
Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while you will not see me and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. It's crucifixion. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Resurrection. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. John 16 occurs on the night that Jesus is arrested. He's speaking to his closest followers about his impending death. This is going to happen. He says, this sorrow that you feel when you don't see me, when I'm in the grave, will turn to joy, and it will be a joy that no one can take from you. Jesus, knowing that all the leaven of these men will die a martyr's death, even though they take your life from you one day, they will not take your joy from you. Why? Because our joy is grounded and flows from the bridegroom being with us, being in us, us being united to him as the church, as the people of God. You see, joy is one of the essential qualities that mark a follower of Jesus. It's listed with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. And that, that list of fruit of the Spirit, it's not fruits, it's fruit, singular. So, so all of those qualities will be developed in the life of anyone who's been born again in Jesus Christ, who has the Holy Spirit living in them. He who began a good work in you will complete it. God is working to accomplish His purposes in you. So He will, if you're His, He will develop joy in you. He'll do it through your willful obedience, your your desire to follow Him and obey Him and conform your life to His pattern. And He'll do it through disciplining you when you don't give willful obedience and through repentance and confession of sin. Since this is His work, it will be accomplished. Well, obviously, joy is some kind of zen-like, uh, overarching peace that just transcends circumstances. Joy, is, he's talking about, is not really something exuberant or emotional. You know, we here at the Crossing Church, we're very intellectual and sophisticated. So when we're talking about joy, we're talking about just this zen-like peace about ourselves, right? That's what the Bible talks about when it talks about joy, right? No. Well, let's look at a passage and see so where you can see this. Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, you have a passage about wisdom. And in this passage, wisdom is being personified. And, and what we know from the rest of Scripture, like John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, that this personification of wisdom in Proverbs 8 is actually referring to Jesus Christ with the Father in creation, making all things. And look at what it says. It's talking about wisdom in Proverbs 8, but you know it's talking about Jesus. Look at what it says about Jesus in Proverbs 8, 27-31. When he established the heavens, I, wisdom, Jesus was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of men. The word there for delight in the original language of the Old Testament literally means to frolic, to jump up and down and clap your hands. 
This is Jesus at creation daily. This is Jesus at the creation of man, delighting, frolicking, jumping up and down and clapping his hands at what he and the Father are creating and the Spirit are creating. This is joy. This is delight. This is exuberance. That's not very dignified. It's not supposed to be dignified. It's joy. We're not bankers. We're we're sons of our Father in heaven. We are the, the bride of the bridegroom of all the creation. It's supposed to be a celebration, a party. It's not supposed to be dignified. Think of David dancing just letting himself go, worshiping the Lord and, and receiving the scorn of his wife or making a fool of himself. David's like, I don't care. I'm caught up in who I'm connected to. Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one you will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Like, like, like we get this at times when by God's grace we get it right as a husband and as a father when we're, we're with our kids and there's just this exuberance that you're, you're, you're singing crazy songs as a family, you're, you're talking in crazy voices, you're running around the house chasing each other, you're frolicking on the floor tickling each other, you're playing games, you're singing loud made up songs, you're just... Enjoy. There's no performance. Like, okay, if you kids do really good today, we're going to frolic and have fun. No, it's just who you are. You're their dad. They're your children. Let's just enjoy each other. And, when it, man, when it happens every day, that's, that's a good thing. It doesn't always happen. I wish, like, all of life could just be that. Let's just frolic. Let's just play. Let's just have fun. In our house, we call it La La Land. Let's just enjoy this. And it's not always like that, but this, it's a picture, it's a taste of how our Father feels about us. This is why the gospel is good news. It's not dour news. It's good news. It's not somber news. It's good. It's to be enjoyed, to be celebrated, to be frolicked in. Now, to balance that, this is not a joy that, that has no sorrow, right? Verse 20 alludes to that when the bridegroom is taken away. John 16 alludes to that. There's pain and childbearing. You're going to be sad, disciples. I'm, how, 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 do, how do you want to hear how people tell you that? You're about to be sad, really sorrow for the next few days. Gee, thanks. But he knows. That's the reality of the situation. There's pain and childbearing. There's sorrow you're about to experience. A bridegroom will be taken away. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He did it for the joy set before him, went through that, right? You see, we have this crazy notion that is actually perpetuated by some who teach the Bible that if you believe enough, work hard enough, have enough faith, being a good Christian, somehow you can have this life free from pain, sickness, trial, trouble. You can be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And if that is the goal of the Christian life, to be happy, so that good Christianity is happy, clappy, cheerleader Christianity, where everything is fine, yeah, all the time, you always have a smile, you always have this positive expression, all is well, sorry. And in that version of Christianity, then the opposite of joy is sadness or sorrow, right? If Christianity is supposed to be happy, then there should be no sorrow or sadness. But see, the opposite of joy, as Tim Keller points out, is not sorrow or sadness. The opposite of joy is 
hopelessness. I had hope. Romans 5, 3-5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice in our sufferings. How is that possible? Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As followers of Jesus, we live a life of joy mixed and mingled with sorrow. We still sin and it grieves us. We, people we love still sin and destroy themselves and it grieves us. We suffer from other sins of others. We suffer from the brokenness of this world and it grieves us. We see people we love suffer. We see people we don't even know. Did you ever show me something on Facebook about a, five, a mother giving up her five-year-old to pay off her drug debt? What is going on? And we grieve, Right? This, this world is like that, that those kinds of things would happen. But we have hope in the sorrow because we have our bridegroom. We have our king. We have our savior with us. Our hope is not rooted in things going our way. Our hope is rooted in Jesus. Having him, he is enough. Our joy is one of the defining marks of us as Christians. Like everyone in the world has happiness that ebbs and flows based on circumstances. Everybody does that. Everybody's happier on Friday than on Monday. Everybody's happier on payday when it's not payday. Everybody's happier on vacation than when you come off of vacation. Everybody's happier when things go your way, you get what you want, than when you, things don't go your way, you don't get your... Like, everybody does that. So what makes us distinct? It's joy filled with hope rooted in the presence of our bridegroom. Rooted in the presence of our King. That's what makes us distinct. That's what makes us stick out. That's what makes us live a life in such a way that people come up and say, you got something I don't have. You know, Peter tells us that. To always be ready to give a a reason for the hope that you have. Inherent in that command is that we're living a life that demonstrates that we're different where people are going to come up and ask us. We we can't just be like everybody else because then we don't have anything different from everybody else. But if we're different because of the presence of our bridegroom, then we have this hope and people are going to come up. Why do you have this hope? Your life stinks right now. Things are not good. What's giving you this something that other people don't have? And that's what makes us distinct. You see, the only reason you might be here this morning and not be experiencing, or one of the only reasons, the joy of your salvation could be because you don't have the bridegroom. You're just religious. And religious people are never joyful. Ever. Truly joyful. I mean, they'll be happy when their religion is working out for them, when they're doing a good job, they're measuring up to their standard, but it doesn't last. Because then they have a bad day and they're miserable and everybody around them is miserable. Or they're rooting their, their joy in something that's just transient and temporary and it's not deep and fulfilling and lasting. True, deep, exuberant, frolicking, jumping up and down, clapping, godly joy only comes through the presence of Jesus and His Spirit in us. A joy that transcends circumstances and suffering. And so for some of you here today, your first step toward joy might be repenting of your sins. Repenting of your religiousness. 
and receiving life in Jesus Christ. Having the bridegroom come in, make you a new person. Becoming one with the bridegroom, becoming part of this thing called the church that is the bride of the bridegroom. Like, I know we say that often on Sundays, and, and don't hear that simply as, well, they're just supposed to say that because it's Sunday, and you're supposed to tell people to believe in Jesus and receive the gospel. Like, don't hear that. Don't assume you're in. Never assume your salvation. Examine yourselves. Is salvation of Christ in you? Is the Spirit of Christ in you? You might just be really good at being religious. You know the lingo, you know how to act, you got everybody fooled, but you don't have God fooled. And maybe the Spirit of God is speaking to you this morning, saying you've, you've never come alive. You've just been performing. Because you've never had experienced this kind of joy. This deep, transcendent joy. But for most of us who have in this room come alive in Christ, one of the great joy stealers in our life is disobedience and sin. When we're chasing sin and we're not walking in repentance, we will not experience joy but grief. Our consciences are not clean. We, we, we are hiding things. We're afraid to be known because someone will find out. I'm hiding something, they'll think less of me. I'll lose my position, my status in their eyes. We won't be bold will be timid and insecure because we're living as though the good news is not good news. We're living under condemnation and guilt. Repentance and obedience bring joy because we have a clear conscience. There's nothing between me and Jesus. I'm not harboring any bitterness or any sin. I'm not chasing any secret sin. It's just wide open. Anyone can walk up. Here's... Here's my credit card. Here's my phone. Here's my computer. Here's my, my schedule. Look through it all. I've, I've got nothing to hide. I'm not perfect. But the areas where I'm struggling, I'm repenting it openly to my brothers and sisters, and they're helping me. I'm harboring things and chasing stuff in the dark. And when that happens, there's this boldness and this joy. Because there's like no, nothing interfering between you and the Spirit and being used by Him and being sent out by Him and being empowered by Him to do what He's called and created you to do. So you're just able to go all out engaging with Him in this deep, intimate, joy-filled experience of being a follower of Jesus. Tim Keller put it like this. Joy is the buoyancy that results from the enjoyment of the unchanging privileges we have in God. Joy is the buoyancy that results from the enjoyment of the unchanging privileges we have in God. A buoy is something that floats on the surface of the waves. It does not sink. It does not sink. Delight is a similar word. It means to make light. Not sink, but make light rise. We all have junk that we deal with that threatens to sink us. Every single person in this room. But joy and delight is seeing the privileges we have because of God, the presence and reality of Jesus in our lives that gives us a joy and a delight that does not cause us to be sunk. We still have to deal with the garbage. It's there. 
You can't make it go away. But we're not sunk. We're floating along with a joy and a delight that is supernatural. Because it's only from God. Empowered by His Spirit. I exhort you today, my brothers and sisters, to turn from your sins, to repent, to see the presence and reality of the bridegroom, the presence and reality of Jesus. He is here. He has never left you. And He's not going to pull you out of the junk. But He wants to give you Himself Give you his joy so that you can be held up, floating along with joy and delight in the midst of the garbage you have to walk through. See that. Believe that. Be transformed by that. Be moved by that. So that you can give a reason for the hope that you have. Because there's a different way that we live. Let the bridegroom captivate your heart once again. Let him captivate your heart once again. And then Jesus finishes off this conversation with two parables. His first two parables of the book of Mark. Verse 21, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine... Is for fresh wineskins. Again, this made perfect sense to those in the first century, even to us today. If you have an old garment with a hole in it, you put a piece of cloth on it to patch it. The cloth has not been pre-shrunk. And when you wash that garment, the cloth will then shrink and will tear away from the old garment, thus creating a new hole, new problem. If you put new wine into uh, wineskins, wineskins were made from the skin of sheep. If you take an old wine skin that's been used and used is kind of frail and brittle and you fill it with new wine or if you're using the Holman Christian Standard Bible it may say grape juice but if you fill it with new wine a little Southern Baptist humor, sorry then when the wine begins to ferment in the old wine skin gases are produced carbon dioxide the same gas that's produced when bread rises that makes all those delicious little holes in homemade bread that gas will stretch the wine skin like air filling up a balloon and the old wine skin is brittle and frail and it will just burst you've destroyed your new wine the point is obvious you can't combine the new with the old the new destroys the old jesus did not come to adapt himself to the religion of the first century jews You people are asking this question about fasting. You're trying to see where I fit with the disciples of John and where I fit with the Pharisees. Quit looking to make me fit into your system of religion. I've come to break the system. I've come to make a new mold, a new way. I've come to do something, this new covenant we read at the beginning of the worship gathering, this this new covenant that's never been done before where God's going to dwell in his people and never leave his people. And I'm going to, my, my spirit's going to dwell in them so that they, they will know me and love me and be my people and walk in my ways and obey my commands as never before. This is a new thing. This is radical newness. I'm creating my own definitions, my own box. Jesus is increasingly going to come face to face with the religions of his day and increasingly show that what he has come to do and bring is the exact opposite of religion. 
Whether that religion is Judaism, where you, you justify and prove yourselves by your obedience to Old Testament commands, or whether that religion is any other man-created system of justifying yourself, the gospel is totally new, completely different. Nothing like this. All other religions other than Christianity is man's attempt to get to God or prove himself or justify himself. All of them. There's Jesus in the gospel, everything else. That's it. That's, that's the classifications. Jesus in the gospel and everything else. The Secret Church on April 29th is going to look at world religions. And so if you come to Secret Church on April 29th, either at the Banks House or the Bonner's House, you can get six hours of how Jesus in the gospel is better than anything else that's out there. And so it's different than Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and atheism, which is a religion. Environmentalism. It's all man working to prove himself. It's, it's Rocky Balboa telling Adrian before he fights Apollo Creed in the first Rocky movie that he wants to go all 15 rounds. He doesn't care about winning. Just let me go all 15 rounds. Why? So that I will know I'm not just a bum from the neighborhood. It's Harold Abrams in the Chariots of Fire movie, the sprinter, who says in that movie, I've got 10 seconds as a sprinter to justify my existence. Whether it's a religious system or a man-created religious system, athleticism and academia, intelligence, whatever it is, it's all man working to prove himself, justify himself. Every single person in the world has a religion. Everybody. Some method or some system of justifying their existence. And every single person in this room is tempted to fall back into some religion that you've created or some religion that you've adhered to. Look how good I am. I'm, at, I'm in a worship gathering on Sunday. I'm in a DNA group. I'm part of a missional community. Like we call ourselves gospel-centered. We can easily become legalistic and self-righteous and religious. It, like we already have. It can definitely happen. All of us are tempted to fall back on, on some system of justifying and proving ourselves. If I'm an amazing pastor, an amazing husband, or an amazing father, if I'm funny or smart or athletic, then I can justify my existence to others, to myself, to God, to this world. We're always working to prove that I am worth the air that I'm breathing. I'm worth the space that I've taken up in the universe. And the problem with religion, the sad thing about religion is you never know if you've done enough. And God says to all religions, it is never enough. You'll never measure up. It, it'll, you'll never achieve my standard. You'll never fulfill enough to justify and prove yourself. It can't happen. I don't, I don't care how good you are. It's, it's, it's you know, people lining up to jump across the Washtenaw River. Take everybody who's ever lived on the face of the earth to jump across the Washtenaw River. Like Carl Lewis, Mike Powell, some of the good long jumpers of history, Bob Beeman, they're going to jump further than me. I'm going to jump further than Tim, for sure. But none of us are making it. We all will land in the river. Nobody's clearing the river. We all fall short of God's standard. We're still broken and flawed, but Jesus came and did everything necessary for us to be justified in the eyes of our Creator. Jesus did everything perfectly. Jesus crossed the river. Jesus bridged the divide. And through Jesus, we have life and justification. Through Jesus, we have meaning and value and purpose. Through Jesus, we have access to the God who made us. Through Jesus, we get new life, but it's got to be through Jesus. Isn't 
religion, you, you can be the most devout, generous, faithful member of the crossing church. And if it's not rooted in Jesus, you're just heaping up judgment for yourself on the day of judgment. Heaping up wrath for the day of wrath. Jesus came not to tweak your life. He did not come to add him to your messed up life. He didn't come for you to continue doing the things you're doing. Let me fit Jesus in now so that that will make me okay with God. He is a king. And when a king moves in the neighborhood, he takes over. What he's come to provide is new. Not an amendment to the old. It's brand new. We need new wineskins here. This is a wine that the world has never seen. We need a new creation. A new body, a new temple. Not these man-made structures that the people did build and where the presence of God dwelt, but something different. And we are those new wineskins. We are this new temple. We are this new people under this new covenant. We are this new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Radically different. Now, it doesn't mean we all have radical conversion stories where overnight we go from doing drugs to loving Jesus, but... We are radically changed from being spiritually dead to being alive in Jesus. And over time, you will be radically transformed. Like if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you should be able to say a year ago, I'm I'm radically different than I was today. Two years ago, three, five. Here's some radical changes that have happened to me because of the presence of God. I'm different my oldest grand, uh, granddaughter, I'm not that old. My oldest daughter, um, two of them, one of their favorite movies is Les Mis. Not really. I like to joke with them. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, they are, are mostly aggravated by me singing it. Uh, some of the songs from time to time, like we were playing Uno and somebody puts down a wild and call out red, you know, red, the color of angry. <laughs> And so we, even Sarah can sing the song. It's crazy. Um, so I aggravate him with, with that song. But if you haven't seen the movie, if you haven't seen the, the, the play, if you haven't read the book, strongly encourage it. But if you have, you know that one of the main characters is Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean starts off the movie, he's in prison because he stole bread to, to provide for his family. And minor offense, he gets this immense punishment for that. He eventually gets out of prison. He can't find work because of the, the stigma of being a prisoner in that day and age in France. And Eventually he's taken in by this bishop and he's, he's doing this, but it's just his grind. It's not working out. So he gives in his temptation to steal again. He be, steals their silverware, their silver items and, and runs away from the home of the bishop and the authorities find him. And they bring him back to the bishop, this pastor. And he stands there waiting for judgment and condemnation from this pastor, this bishop. All the bishop has to do is say, yes, this is the man who was living with me. This is my items that he stole. And Jean Valjean goes back to prison to the rest of his miserable existence. But then something very unexpected happens. The bishop, the pastor, looks around and says, but you forgot these candlesticks. And you forgot these other silver items. You forgot this and you forgot that. Making it appear as though they had freely given all of these silver items to this poor man. He did not suffer condemnation and wrath. He suffered or experienced grace. And mercy. And the police leave. They have nothing to charge him with. And if you know the story, you know that totally changed his life. Radically, that one act of grace and mercy 
radically changed the rest of his life. Even to the end of his life, he was never the same. That impacted him forever. We have the same opportunity in a much greater way through Jesus' act of grace and mercy, through dying for our sins, giving us life in Christ. We have the same opportunity to be radically changed, to be radically different because of our union with the bridegroom, his delight over us. Jesus came to give us this radical new way of being in relationship with God called the gospel. Through his life, death, resurrection, we become this new people filled with a joy that cannot be satisfied by anything else. Like when you, when you get really excited about things in this life, really excited about Golden State winning 73 games, that was really exciting. Really excited about a hot mule set in front of you, that's really exciting. A new book, a new movie, a new video game, a new this, new that. When you get real excited about those things, tell yourself, there's something better than this. This is just pointing me to the greater joy. Do not be fully satisfied with temporary, transitory things. There's a greater joy that your Father wants you to have in Jesus. So how much, a couple questions as we close. How much joy and hope are you experiencing right now in your life? If you are filled with joy and hope, how can you share this with others? And if you're missing joy and hope, how can you repent and trust and see Jesus as the true source of your joy and your hope? What parts of your life are you most tempted to use to justify yourself and turn into a religion? And how does the gospel of Jesus crush that? And in what ways have you most experienced new life and new transformation in Jesus over the last year? What new actions or attitudes have you seen the most? What old actions and attitudes have more and more disappeared? And so these questions are not just reflection for now, but I encourage you this week, during your time with your DNA group, maybe over lunch in a few minutes, with your family sitting around a meal one night, um, talk, talk through these things, share these things. In community, let's be transformed and live these things out. Father, we are grateful for Jesus, your gift to us, his grace, his mercy, being our bridegroom, bridegroom, being our savior, being our king, the life, the joy, the newness that he brings, unlike anything else that we bow down to, unlike anything else we have attempted to worship. So, Father, I ask today that you would crush our idols, that you would crush our man-made religions, that you would crush any attempt we have to justify ourselves, that we would fall freely into the arms of our bridegroom, to be embraced by him, to be loved by him, to be saved by him, to be filled with his joy and to enjoy him forever. I pray for anyone here who today needs to be the day of their salvation, that you make them alive in Jesus. And they would share in this meal we're about to partake in for the first time as a child of God. And that they would boldly tell of their salvation to someone before they leave. Help us to respond in faith, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.